1: of this particular uh, message is called live in harmony. And that's taken right from these particular verses. And I would imagine that for many of us uh, uh, who have been influenced by the new age mov- movement, maybe when we consider living in harmony, we think of living in connection with all the li- living beings through a kind of impersonal flow of energy. And it's that kind of uh, new age approach that, that approach to harmony that helps us think through life here in in a city uh, which is full of just wonderful things and also incredibly challenging things and helps us to understand uh, our own existence here in in this in this big uh, beautiful and broken city but there is a difference Uh, there's a difference between this new age spirituality and the new testament theology when it comes to our understanding of harmony Paul wants us to see that difference and he wants to call us into uh, a New Testament understanding of harmony. And that is not one in which we live uh, or we sort of inhabit this sort of impersonal energy flow uh, that holds us all together uh, supposedly, but he wants us to uh, live in harmony. He charges us to live in harmony um, by imparting us uh, imparting harmony to us, excuse me, as a hope that we might in Christ uh, move into deep personal relationships, relationships that actually cost a lot of energy. Uh, so it's not an impersonal experience of, uh, it's not a, a, an experience of an impersonal energy flow, but it is an experience of entering into personal relationships that actually demand a lot of energy. And in doing that, uh, we are actually able to to live as we ought to live, shall we say, and that is to treat people as people, to treat people as they actually deserve, and in so doing, not only honor them, but give glory to God. Living in harmony, according to Paul, is one of the marks of the Christian life. Now, as we've said in uh, in the last three weeks as we looked at this passage, these verses here are marks of the true Christian life. They don't make you a Christian, but they are emblematic of somebody who has become a Christian. And so today, let's look at this mark of living in harmony, and let's look at it uh, in, in three ways. I think what we see here is we take out three big ideas, is that Christians are called to experience the wholeness of harmony, We're called to uh, experience the secret to living peaceably. And then uh, in light of those two things, we're called to live uh, in Christ uniquely before others. And so with that in mind, let's let's jump to the first first, uh, uh, point there, the wholeness of harmony. Paul calls Christians to live in harmony with others. And he gives us this very general description here uh, of harmonious relationships in verse 15, when he says that harmonious relationships are those where there's rejoicing with those who rejoice and there's weeping with those who weep. So first, uh, because we need to see that he's not suggesting a a general posture of goodwill or sympathy towards others. Uh, He's not suggesting that we're generally happy for other people when things go well for them or generally sad when things go go poorly for them. Uh, Rejoicing and weeping depict, for Paul, profound relational unity with others, uh, with those who are inside the church, who share the most basic of of ideas, the most basic of values, uh, but also to enter into a, a profound relational unity with those who don't share those same values with you. So Paul in this, in this section is speaking not just to Christians, but to non-Christians as well. And he's saying that you're called to live harmoniously with each. You're called to rejoice with those who rejoice and we're called to weep with those who weep. Now consider those two terms, rejoicing and weeping. These are full-bodied activities, aren't they? Rejoicing and weeping are whole being experiences. You can't rejoice and weep from a distance. See, these aren't standoffish terms. Rejoicing and weeping, those are slow down terms. Those are get close terms. Typically, you and I don't rejoice or weep with people that we don't know enough to care deeply about. And Paul is saying that we cannot live in harmony as God desires for us if we move about this city with a buffer between our lives and the lives of others. So he says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And uh, this past year, my brother experienced a tragedy. Um, I got a call from him one day that a friend of his had died. Uh, it, was a, it was in a car accident. It was a senseless car accident. Uh, this man uh, was killed uh, when some other people were drag racing. Uh, just heartbreaking for everybody involved. And my brother was uh, quite upset. I could tell in the way that he talked about it. I could tell um, uh, in how, you know, I spoke with my mother and that she experienced that he, he wept uh, with her. He wept in front of her. He wept uh, over the experience for himself. He wept for those who were involved. And I asked my brother, who was this friend? I, I didn't know him. And he told me a story uh, that I think is relevant for us. He said this, this friend of his he met because he worked at the gas station around the corner from his house. And every couple of uh, uh, couple times a week, he'd enter in to get gas and he ended up having a conversation with this guy who worked in this gas station. Uh, this gas station was not something that my brother actually initially wanted so close to his house. Um, and of course, when you go in to get gas, you don't expect to become friends with the people who work there. But this uh, Indian family opened this gas station. They hired a man uh, in that station who was from, from Africa. And everybody uh, in the Indian family and this African man all loved soccer. And my brother loves soccer. So you can imagine he'd go in there a couple times a week and they'd have some laughs and connect and, in some form rejoice, um, and I would be surprised though that until this tragedy took place that my brother understood the kind of harmony that he was living in with this, this uh, person who worked in a gas station around the corner. So you would imagine that this was really just a customer service uh, relationship, right? Uh, in which somebody would come in and and, and there'd be a transaction. Um, But that's not at all what was taking place between this family and this man who worked for them and my brother and probably countless others. They weren't just coexisting as service providers and customers, but they were in in harmony, whole experience, whole bodied harmony as neighbors. Now, I think there's a couple of things, you know, if that's a goal, you might say, to know each other that well, so that we can rejoice and weep with people that we don't have a tremendous amount in common. Uh, There's probably some barriers that just initially come up for for us. And I know, as I think about uh, myself, I think about my brother, who were very similar. um, I think about temperament. And maybe some of you are listening to this story, and you're thinking, well, if David's brother's anything like him, then he's an extrovert. And uh, extroverts are inclined towards those, making those kinds of connections. They live from making those kinds of connections. And, and to some degree, that's absolutely true. But just because extroverts are good at making connections, it doesn't mean that we're good at intimacy. It doesn't mean that we're good about talking about things that matter most, or showing our feelings, or or sharing aspects of our lives that are necessary to have a whole bodied, whole experience, uh, harmonious relationship with those who are around us. And so there's barriers for extroverts too. Uh, Everybody in their temperament has a barrier towards this kind of relationship. That's why Paul charges us to live in harmony with those inside the church and with those outside the church. And so you may not be an extrovert, right? But maybe you're an introvert and you're actually more inclined towards intimacy, but it's making that initial connection. See, all of us, we have particular barriers. And yet Paul calls calls us forward. He charges us, live in harmony. Second, we always have to consider our context. You know, as New Yorkers, we're surrounded by people. And of course, we love that. Most of us love that. Uh, But that doesn't always mean that we treat people as they deserve. It doesn't mean that we treat people with the profundity, with the preciousness that people actually uh, deserve to be treated. You know, I would imagine that many of us treat the person who lives next door to us, which in a New York City apartment is probably, you know, somebody who's sleeping 25 to 30 feet from you every night, that we... Possibly treat that person with the same kind of intimacy as we do somebody who who uh, we pass as we get on and off the subway. And so, in a in a city with a tremendous amount of people, um, you know, we're not prone really to living in harmony. In fact, we're prone more to hiding. And so, Christians, we need to know that you and I are called to those who are right outside our comfort zone but who live within a real relational proximity to us. We're called to them. That's placed us in this particular time and this particular uh, place for harmony with those people. Now you live in a, new, a city like ours, you're not called to, to live in harmony with necessarily the person that you, you cross paths with entering, uh, entering the subway. But I think you're called. I think we're called to those people in our buildings, we're called to those uh, doormen, neighbors, superintendents, those local merchants. We're called to those in the church, we're called to those outside of the church. You know, One way to think about harmony, I think an image that is in accord with, with Paul's language here is that of an orchestra. You know, An orchestra is, is what? Is a, a, a community of people with skills and gifts and abilities uh, with instruments to be put to use. And, you know, before the orchestra begins, before everybody places their attention on the conductor as he calls them in, into concert, what, what do we experience? We experience discord, right? We experience them uh, tuning their instruments, preparing, getting themselves ready. And it sounds like disharmony, right? until he calls them into attention. he calls them and he brings them all together, all their skills, all their talents, all their abilities, all their instruments. What do we hear? We hear beautiful music, harmony. That's harmony, that's the Christian idea of harmony. But many of us are taking all of our skills, our abilities, our instruments, and we're waiting for a song that never actually begins. And so the question is, who calls you into it? What is your belief that says, I know I'm called to live into harmony, but I'm not sure who to follow. I'm not sure who to, uh, to, look, to look towards, who to, to, to listen, who to listen for. So there's barriers for all of us, there's barriers in terms of uh, temperament, there's barriers for us as, in, as New Yorkers in terms of context, right? But there's also a barrier for us in terms of our age sort of, and I don't mean our physical age, I mean that time in which we live. There is a direct correlation between our spiritual lives and how we live day to day. You know, in ancient times, people needed to rely on one another. Why? Because it was dangerous, uh, because it was an inhospitable world. Uh, Typically, people were far more isolated in their existence than, especially than we are as, as people who live in a city. But they were also a lot more open to the spiritual world. And I don't mean just in ancient times, like in biblical times, but you know, you think of Hamlet, you think of Shakespeare. You know, in, in Hamlet, one of the uh, turning points is when what, when Hamlet's father, the ghost, comes in and tells him of the tragedy that's taken place in Denmark, right? And so, yes, that's a literary device, but that is far more probably um, emblematic of how people have always thought about their lives interacting with the spiritual world. People have always been open and susceptible, uh, porous, you might say. Uh, the, their, their life on earth and the, and the lives of, of the spiritual world just was one that was always inter- intersecting, always interacting. They always were vulnerable to what was taking place in the spirit world, for good or bad, right? But we now live in a time in which we are invulnerable to the spirit world. Um, So, you know, because we don't believe in in a transcendent moral authority, we don't believe in a God as as a culture. We don't live into that, and therefore, because we're not vulnerable to him. It's not a coincidence that we're less vulnerable to each other. Um, that uh, we become numb to the reality, to the needs of one another. And when we become less vulnerable to each other, we actually miss out on the way that God works through people to speak to us, to live into us, to care for us. So uh, Paul calls us to live into, into harmony, to, to move into relationships whole-bodied relationships, whole emotional relationships, you might say, a whole kind of harmony uh, so that um, others might benefit, so that others might be blessed, but so that their eyes would be drawn up towards the conductor, you might say. Uh, This is what John Calvin says about Christians who are called to live in harmony. He says, you know, we are bidden, he doesn't say, you know, he says, when we are bidden to prepare good things before men, we must at the same time notice for what purpose? It is not indeed that men may admire and praise us, as this is a desire which Christ carefully forbids us to indulge, since he bids us to admit God alone as the witness of our good deeds, to the exclusion of all men, but that their minds being elevated to God, they may give praise to him, that by our example they may be stirred up to the practice of righteousness, that they may, in a word, perceive the good in the sweet odor of our life by which they may be allured to the love of God. So, Christians, you have your marching orders. For those who are professing faith in Christ, live harmoniously. For those who desire to live this way or are afraid to live this way, what are your marching orders, I guess I'll say? Who holds you accountable to them? Let me invite you set your gaze on the conductor of all of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. As he raises his hand, let us look to him. He'll draw you, your gifts, your skills, your instrument into harmony with others. So Paul doesn't just tell us to live harmoniously, but he invites us to live and he charges us to live peaceably. Uh, And because it's hard, he provides uh, what I'll say is a surprising secret. So let the second point is to live peaceably. We need to know a secret. Now, if you just listen to this first point, it'd be pretty easy for us to just say, well, Paul is an idealist, isn't he? But here, because he's making a distinction between living harmoniously and living peaceably, we see that he's both an idealist and a realist. Look in verse 18, in verse 18, we see where Paul says, "If possible, in so far as you're able, live peaceably with others." And the reason he says, uh, "If possible, in so far as you're able," is he's saying that oftentimes it's actually not possible. The inverse is, is often true. Uh, there are circumstances where, because of willful persecution towards Christians, towards people. Pursuing harmony isn't an option for people. And yet, Paul says, when that's not an option, live peaceably. In fact, he's saying it's essential. It's essential to ordering a life that is lovely and honorable on the side of others. It's essential to live peaceably. In order to do that, you have to live peaceably and the way to live peaceably, or the, the way, the only way to live peaceably, is to not repay evil for evil, is to not take matters into our own hands through revenge, is, and is to not seek vengeance. Now, is this hard to do in the face of persecution? Of course it is. Absolutely. No question. John Calvin, though, says this. He says, you know, living peaceably is not a common gift. And I think what he means by that is not just that it's rare uh, that people can live peaceably under persecution. He's saying it's not normal. It's strange to this world. And so when Paul says, we're not just to live harmoniously, we're to live peaceably. he's He's offering up something that I think is utterly unique to Christianity, the peacefulness that Paul describes here, I think is a u- unique Christian contribution to the world. And, and that's what uh, John Calvin, I think is saying. So what, what makes it unique? So let's walk through it. When a Christian is under siege, you might say, when he's come under the sword, when he's being persecuted, Paul is showing us that a Christian, the literal language is he makes room in his, he makes room for wrath when a Christian um, is under persecution, when he's under siege, he makes room in his heart and his mind for the impending judgment of God on the world. And you see that in verse 19, the secret to living peaceably is believing is trusting is depending on the wrath of God. I know that sounds strange, right? It sounds so counterintuitive to us. But in order to live peaceably, Christians, uh, Paul says, need to to believe more, not less, in the God who actually brings judgment. We need to believe more, not less, in the God who brought judgment uh, upon Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. We need to believe more, not less, in the God who rained fire down from heaven um, when Elijah called down the wrath of God. We need to believe more, not less, into that God. Now, of course, that statement, this idea, is just counter to what you and I actually believe. You know, as secular people, as New Yorkers, it's ingrained in us. We've, in a sense, been catechized that to believe uh, in an, um, that that to believe in a God of judgment is to create a people of judgment. That when we believe in a God of wrath, we inevitably are going to become a, a people of wrath. Um, But that's not what Paul is saying. In fact, Paul is saying just the opposite. He's saying if you know, if you trust, if you depend on a God of wrath, on this God of wrath, this won't make you a person of wrath. It'll actually make you a person of peace. Look what he says. Don't avenge yourself. Why? Because you know, you trust, you believe that vengeance is ultimately coming one day. And when it does, it will be perfect. See, God says, don't take vengeance upon your, uh, into your own hands. Why? Because you're not wise enough. You're not powerful enough. You're not strong enough. Any vengeance that you put out into the world will just create more disharmony, more pain, more suffering, not only for the person that you're, you're imposing it on, but for you yourself. See, vengeance is coming, Christians believe but the vengeance is the Lord's. See, vengeance is mine. He says, it's not yours. It's mine. The emphasis is on mine. See, because God only God's vengeance is perfect. So far, far from enabling violence, believing in a God of wrath actually makes you free. It actually allows you, it actually compels you. That when you are in discord with somebody when somebody's wronged you when somebody has it out for you that you desire for them peace because you know that the, a god of judgment is going to come and he's going to deliver judgment to all so Miroslav Wolf very famously he's a theologian up at up at yale school of divinity he you know he grew up in the balkans he saw religious persecution uh for vast majority of his life, he had this same conversation with people who'd seen their children murdered, their their husbands and uh, uh, you know shot dead in the street, their wives raped, the most horrifying of places. And he says, if you believe in a God who promises that one day I'll bring the sword, so you don't have to, then you won't feel the need to pick up the sword when you need to. So if you believe in a God of judgment, that that won't make you judgmental. If you believe in a God of wrath, that won't make you a person of wrath. It will make you a person of peace. And not just in those big scenarios, those extreme situations that pray, that we pray that we never find ourselves into, you know, in terms of war, genocide, or or the like, but in everyday situations too. I was reading recently a, a book by Brent Hansen called The Truth About Us the very good news about how very bad we are. He tells a very very pedestrian story about a man who was in an argument with his wife. And he said, you know, most of the time when I'm in an argument with my wife, there's a shred of the argument in which I think I'm right. But most of it, I'm just fighting for my life. And he said, but there's one time where I got into an argument with my wife and I knew that I was 100% right in this and she was 100% wrong. And they battled all around the house, talking, arguing about it, uh, chipping away at each other, you might say verbally. And, but he was utterly convinced that he was 100% right. And she was just fighting for her life. And uh, as the rage, you might say, or the anger built up in him, he had an impression. He says he heard Uh, the voice of God speak into his particular situation, not literally, but enough to make uh, God's opinion known to him. And the voice of God uh, simply said this. So do you want me to judge her right now? And of course, his reaction was, have mercy. Right? Have mercy. No, don't judge her right now. Hold back your judgment. See, here's a guy who believes in the the justice of God. He believes in the judgment of God. He believes in the ultimate wrath of God on all sin. But when you know that you've avoided that by the grace of somebody else, then you look to those, even when they're wrong, especially when they're wrong, and you say, Lord, don't bring judgment on them yet. (laughs) Don't bring judgment here, right? because you seek for redemption, you seek for grace. See the secret to living peaceably is to know the wrath of God, but the real secret to living, living peaceably is to, on the, to know on the far side of wrath is the grace of God in Jesus, right? Doesn't that, that, that phrase that God imparted to this, this husband on that one day remind you of Jesus? right? God says to this guy, so do you want me to judge her right now? What does Jesus say on the road to the to Calvary, on the road to the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I know they deserve wrath. I know we all of humanity deserves wrath. Don't bring it down on them. See, if you believe in wrath, you'll be a peacemaker. You'll be someone who uh, is willing to enter into relationships in order to bring about harmony at great cost, at great energy. You're not be a, you will not be a person who seeks revenge. You won't be a person uh, that seeks to bring vengeance. See, why do we seek re- revenge? Why is there, you know, the desire for revenge so prevalent in the world? Why do we want to bring our own vengeance? We wanna bring our own vengeance upon another because we want those who have hurt us to experience that same hurt themselves and more. We wanna have others feel the same pain. We wanna know that uh, they're going through what we went through and we want them to know that we're the ones that are making them feel it. See, revenge makes us feel like we've gotten the last word. And if you read the great novels, you read the Count of Monte Cristo, you read you read uh, the great plays, you read Hamlet, you know that our desires for revenge will never ultimately satisfy us. It doesn't work. But God's redemption, his grace on the other side of wrath, his redemption is greater than our revenge because God's grace produces in you and I, it produces in the perpetrator what is most wanted, and that's the recognition of wrongs done. That's understanding of how we've wounded somebody else. And that, what that does is it leads to repentance and reconciliation and that leads to healing. And when understanding and repentance and healing take place, something better has happened than you having the last word. And that's God having the last word. And true justice has been experienced. So, we're meant to experience a whole, the whole, a wholeness of harmony. Paul's saying we're also meant to uh, know the secret to living peaceably in the world. But we're also meant to recognize that there are two precautions to the, our pursuit of peacefulness, peaceability, you might say. Or, yeah, being peaceable. We're not to seek. Uh, Calvin says, we're not to seek to be in such esteem of others that we refuse to undergo the hatred of any for Christ whenever it's necessary. That we will seek to be peacemakers in the world, but we need to know that there will be times where that will be impossible for us because of the world's hatred for Jesus. And second, that courteousness should not denigrate into compliance Calvin says, so as to lead us to flatter the vices of men for the sake of preserving peace. So Christians, as we uh, pursue these things, um, we should know that we're going to take heat for being associated with Christ, but in our desire to bend over backwards, to love people well, that we can also uh, be unhelpful, overly compliant that we become, um, um, that we over assimilate to culture, and therefore uh, uh, give people a false impression of what it is to walk with Christ. So we're meant to be uh, people who enter into relationships of harmony. We're meant to be people uh, uh, who are peaceable. Uh, but lastly, we're called to live uniquely. Look in the in the last section there in verse twenty, Paul says. Uh, instead of bringing vengeance upon others, to the contrary, we are to treat our enemies in ways in which we, we feed them when they're hungry, we give them drink when they're thirsty, and when we do that, what happens? Burning coals are placed on their head. Now, what does that mean? Burning coals on the head was an ancient form of repentance. Uh, it didn't burn uh, because they were placed in such a way and in such a device that didn't allow them to actually burn the head, but it made it hot. It made the person think. It made them sweat. It made them want to turn and repent, and that is exactly uh, um, why we don't uh, enforce judgment upon somebody, right, or, or speak wrath into somebody, but because we know that grace is on the other side of forget of, uh, is on the other side of of uh, God's wrath, and therefore we're to live in such a way that they don't look at us and admire us in so much as they look up and they see the one that we admire, who is Jesus Christ. So let me just warn us. Um, What does it mean for us to be haughty and reject the lowly? I think it means that when we imagine as you might be imagining now the one the two maybe three people in your life in your day-to-day life that you see and you think is God calling me to this person I think you can know that we might be moving towards haughtiness and not harmony when we start to count the costs of what it's going to take to know that person and for that person to know us We're building bridges. We're justifying our our rationale for not entering into harmonious relationships. That's a form of haughtiness. It's a form of elevating our lives and our plans, our needs above another person, another person, and not treating people as people. So let me just say that as a warning to us at Storefront Church. We're not just called to gather on Sunday. We're called to go out and live harmoniously with others. Second, let, us, let me warn us do you find yourself falling into a kind of notion of, of uh, harmony in which you just have a general positive disposition towards the city? That you're loving the city through a kind of positive energy, but you're, you're not allowing the spirit to lead you into the kind of harmony that Paul and Jesus are calling us into so that we find ourselves in relationships where we experience the the great highs and we experience the low low lows. uh, Christians in New York, we are very susceptible to this. We're no different than others. It is by grace and grace alone that we would even find this the right challenge for us today. Let me call us into this. I think this is what we're meant meant to be as a community here in the city, a unique community here in the city, to recognize those around us that are hungry and to feed them, whether physically or spiritually or emotionally, those who are thirsty and to provide sustenance for them, either physically or spiritually or emotionally. And I'm sure there are Christians on here, and I'm sure there's non-Christians on here going, I don't know if I I have what it takes to do this. I don't know that I want to do this, right? And so we can pray, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief here. And that's right, and that's good. But we should also remember, even if you are new to the Christian faith, that you're ready to do this, that God's calling you to this, that this isn't a level of spiritual maturity. This is basic spiritual maturity for the Christian. You know, Paul says in Philippians 2, he says to those who are considering the faith, who are new to the faith, he says this. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. Live in harmony, he says. And what I love about this passage is that he uses this refrain of any. Any. And what does any mean? Any is the least amount. If you have least amount of encouragement by being united to christ if you have the least amount of comfort from his love if you have the least uh uh common sharing in the spirit any the least amount of tenderness and compassion or joy you're ready to go you're ready to serve you're ready to go and extend the least of that to somebody else can we be that church i think we can together if you and I, with an earshot of this message, can live in harmony together, can live peaceably with one another, uniquely in Christ, we can live before others. Let's do it, let's do it, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for this church. I thank you for those who are here I give you thanks for those that are are coming, that will come. Lord, help us to be the church today and let's pray for the church that will come tomorrow and next year and the year beyond. Lord, help us be a community along the High Line that makes people say, the greatest renewal of this neighborhood is not this architectural uh, walkway but it's the lives and the institutions it's the people who live and, who live and work around it For your glory Lord help us to live in harmony pray this in Jesus name Amen